who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Very nice to see you. Let's pray that God would speak to us from his word. Would you join me in just praying for a minute? Father God, thank you for the scriptures. And we pray that tonight you would reach out to us and you'd fill our hearts with your hope and you'd inspire us to follow you more closely. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the second of two talks that I'm giving entitled Come Holy Spirit. And um, the reason I'm giving these talks is because I just simply don't want us to miss out as a church to any move of God when it comes to the Holy Spirit if there's even a sniff of revival in the air we want some of it and my subject tonight which links very very much is what does it take to change the world what does it take to change the world if like many tourists you were to go around Westminster Abbey and you were to make your way to the crypt you would find on one of the tablets up in the crypt, these rather moving words. When I was young and free and my imagination had no limits, I dreamt of changing the world. 
As I grew older and wiser, I discovered the world wouldn't change. So I shortened my sights somewhat and decided to change only my country. But it too seemed immovable. And as I grew into my twilight years, in one last desperate attempt, I settled for changing only my family. Those closest to me, but alas, they would have none of it. And now as I lie on my deathbed, I suddenly realise if I had only changed myself first, then by example I would have changed my family. And from their inspiration and encouragement, I would then have been able to better my country. And who knows, I may even have changed the world. And in a sense, there lies the answer. What needs to happen for the world to change is that individuals need to change. And I can't think of a more powerful change agent than the Holy Spirit. I wonder if you noticed at the end of that reading, near the end of it, about Saul's conversion, that Ananias was told he was to go and pray for him, and as he prayed for him, scales fell from his eyes and he was filled with the Spirit. On the face of it, fishermen following a carpenter doesn't sound like the recipe for world revolution, does it? And yet, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about them, and the revolution is still happening. So I have just got a few pointers, which we can each make our own, I hope, as to what it takes to change the world. Individually, one by one, we need to change. And the first is this, the first point is this. Individuals who change the world need to be connected to Christ. They need, we need to be connected to Christ. One observer put it like this when Jesus left the 12 they were far worse off materially than most churches are today they had no books no buildings no bank accounts all of which the church has got in abundance but one thing they had the church today is struggling to recover a relationship with Jesus and faith in him when you become a Christian you're not joining a club you're following a person and I guess that there's no better example or more radical example of a person who's completely changed than the Apostle Paul, who goes from being an ethnic cleanser to a church planter. What brings about this transformation in him? Well, it's pretty simple, isn't it? An encounter with Christ. An encounter with Christ. And today, there's a kind of built-in skepticism if anyone ever talks about having a Damascus Road experience. But I want to say, if you meet that kind of scepticism, you yourself should be sceptical about the scepticism. Why should we be? Why should we write it off? Why should we diminish it? Surely it's a fantastic thing when God steps into lives, and he does. And surely we should pray for more experiences like that around the world, Jesus making himself known. And if we're ever going to make an impact in building God's kingdom this has to be the starting place right through the scriptures this is the foundational building block you have to encounter God yourself you have to experience the power of God you know just think think right back think of Abraham or Abraham as he was when God calls him God has so many ways of communicating with him. He calls him out to look at the, scars, the stars in the sky and says, your offspring will be like that. 
or in one particularly mysterious episode, he gets him to sacrifice a pigeon, cut it in half and to wait. And there's a vivid picture of Abraham scaring away the vultures as they come. And then a thick darkness comes on the land. And Abraham knows that he's met God. Or think, if you like, of Moses, who's put out to grass having murdered an Egyptian. What's he doing? He's broad stiff, one imagines, just trudging around Mount Sinai looking after sheep. What can be more dull than that? He's on the run. He, he's just wasting away his life, really. And then he looks up and he sees a sight that consumes him of a burning bush. And through that, God says to him, I'm here, take off your feet. This is holy ground. And God commissions him and he knows he's met the living God. Or think of Jacob at the brook, fighting with God, being touched on his hip. Now, I was thinking to myself, probably at this point, you're going to say, Rupert, if you take life at this speed, we're going to be here forever. But don't worry, I'm not. I'm not going to go right through. So we'll jump. We'll jump to Paul and the reading we just had. And he stopped in his tracks. And he falls to the ground. I can never quite make up my mind, because I don't think we're told, was he riding on a donkey or a horse or was he just trudging along but whichever way it was whether he was on Shanks's pony or Shanks himself he he falls to the ground he knows he's met God we need to pray for this it's the Holy Spirit that does this when the Holy Spirit touches lives things begin to change And I'm sure, just looking out, I'm sure this is some of your story. I'm sure you've got a good story to tell of God changing your life. And you should tell it. I think of a friend of mine called Earl. And when I asked him his story, his story was that he was trying to recover from drug addiction. But it wasn't really going very well. And in fact, in in this um, place that he was living, this home for recovery, he was given the New Testament, but unknown to those people who were looking after him, he was actually smoking his way through the New Testament, using it to make kind of roll-ups. And he made the mistake, or maybe it wasn't a mistake, under God's grace, of reading the pages before he started to smoke them. And he became a Christian. He, he knew the power of God. I think of a man I heard talk in this church many years ago, a man called Bill Burnett, who was already an archbishop when he had this experience that For some reason or other, he felt God saying to him, go into your chapel and pray. And he didn't know what to do. And he went into his chapel and he he said, God, I don't know what to do. But I feel I'm meant to be here. So maybe the thing I should do is just to give you myself all over again. And he, he described how he just started to pray, Lord, you can have my life. And and. He kind of thought and prayed pictorially and he said he prayed about his body from his toes upwards saying, Lord, you can take my feet. You can take me wherever you want in the world. And he he just prayed right through until to his amazement, he found himself speaking in tongues and praising God as the Holy Spirit filled him. And his whole life changed from that moment. A story I really love is the story I was told a long time ago by a businessman about how he became a Christian. And he described how he was um, shocked and horrified because the girlfriend that he had had given him the boot 
because she said, I'm a Christian, you're not. You don't show any signs of ever becoming a Christian. I just think this relationship's got to finish. And he was extraordinarily hurt by this, not surprisingly. And he described her how he went home and he said he didn't know what to do. But she said what he did was that he knew that in his family home they had one big family Bible. So he got this huge family Bible down off a shelf, which he'd not read, none of his family had read. He blew the dust off it and he said, okay, God, if you exist, very odd prayer coming up, if you exist, I want to meet a vicar. Now, whoever prays that, you have to be pretty desperate, but he did anyway. And then the next day, he went about his, his normal business life and he got on a train, which he did every day, quite a long train journey, and, and sitting in his compartment were two other men. And one of them seemed awfully chatty and um, asked him, can I read your newspaper? And they got chatting and eventually the chap telling me the story said, I turned to him and said, um, I don't normally see you on this train, so what do you do for a living? And the guy said, uh, I'm a vicar. He said, well, what are you doing on this train? Obviously quite shocked. He said, I don't know what I'm doing on this train, but last night when I went to bed, I really felt the Lord was saying to me, you need to get on the train from so-and-so to so-and-so. So here I am. The ending of his story is, I always think, rather unfair on the vicar, because the chap telling me the story said, I was so shocked, I got out at the next station. I don't know where the vicar is now up in Edinburgh somewhere, but uh, it was a good story. It just... That's how God captured this man with his presence. It's a Holy Spirit incident. Why do we pray, come Holy Spirit? Well, one of the reasons I pray, come Holy Spirit, is because people are one to Christ as much by events as they are arguments. Often more so. You know, Paul writes these wonderful letters, but what actually drew him into the kingdom was an event meeting God face to face so that's the first thing to notice tonight we need an encounter with God and I think not just once in our life either you know maybe your faith is getting a bit stale maybe you just it's all getting a bit of a drudge you need to ask Jesus to wake you up with more of a sense of his presence and how will that come through the Holy Spirit but secondly I long for more of an outpouring of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit empowers us to be wholehearted disciples, not some of the time occasional followers. Fruitful disciples are nearly always radically sold out for Jesus. They don't play at following him. They absolutely commit to following him. And if I can speak, um, why wouldn't I, openly and frankly, it really puzzles me and it really annoys me that we admire and champion people who are dedicated to, let's say, sport. Now, it doesn't annoy me that we admire them. That's great. We understand how they have to practice night and day, whether it's hitting a golf ball or whatever it is. They don't just rock up and win. We understand that they change their diet, they change whatever's necessary to run faster, not when they're playing golf, but you know, doing track events. Oftentimes, their whole family life is disrupted. They move where they're living. Their sleep patterns change. They may put off having a family. Why? For 
five minutes fame at the end of a day or something. Now, that doesn't annoy me. I respect that a lot. What annoys me is that when people are that dedicated to following God and to pleasing him, we think they're a bit over the top. And there's a kind of kink in the logic there. Surely you're allowed to be as passionate about following God and as sold out following him as you are running on a racetrack. That level of dedication to God is absolutely necessary if we're going to change the universe for him or with him. You won't change the world with less dedication. You won't be able to follow Christ faithfully with less focus. And have you noticed, and this is an uncomfortable thing to notice, that the disciples have no safety net at all? They're sold out, but there's no backup plan. I remember being impacted by hearing another preacher say, you know, if you build a backup plan into your life, you're wasting that percentage of energy. You know, suppose the disciples have said, no, well, I'm not quite sure about you, Jesus, so I'll spend 30% of my time still running a fishing business. That's 30% of energy less than going, could be going into following Christ. To follow Christ faithfully, you quickly discover, don't you? He leads you out of your comfort zone. That's deliberate. To make us more reliant on him. That's what trusting him is and faith is. And of course, when you do this, you will come across as something somewhat extreme. I'm going to give you a little example just because it amuses me. Uh, it's a great example of dedication. It's a terrible example of tact and diplomacy because there isn't any uh, and it comes from a book, an autobiography written by a man called James Payton, who was to become a missionary to the New Hebrides, which is in the South Pacific. And he's describing what happens when he goes forward for selection. And he obviously is being interviewed by a rather curious group of rather elderly people. And this is what he says. Amongst many who sought to deter me from being a missionary was one dear old Christian gentleman, whose crowning argument always was, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. At last, I replied, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. See what I mean by lack of tact? I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day in my resurrection, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. The old gentleman raised his hands in a deprecating attitude, left the room exclaiming after that, I have nothing to say. But I'm not surprised really. But it shows wholehearted dedication, doesn't it? It's very countercultural to the world's expectation when you follow Christ like this. And if I could put it this way, if you're young and you follow Christ like this, you will present a real challenge if your parents are not Christians. Because without knowing your parents, I'm going to guess that they're hoping and wishing upon you the best life that they can think of for you. And it will go like this, safety in the world's terms. 
and there's a lot to like about their preferred future over your life. A secure job, well paid for many years, and they'll think in terms of a neat family life, settled down probably with a lifetime partner, and a predictable life. But the problem is, none of these things are written into the job description of a disciple. They left their nets and followed him. Or a modern day translation might be, they left their nests and followed him. And just to um, square this illustration up, it's every bit as uncomfortable when you are a child and your parents are alive and they become on fire with God. And I had the pleasure of meeting recently a man and a woman who took early retirement and sold up and they worked for the Mercy Ships for many, many years, leaving their children in the UK to get on with life. And I should imagine the children scratched their head and thought, well, what's got into mum and dad? And the answer was the Holy Spirit, of course. This is what it takes to change the world. It doesn't come cheap, but it does come with Christ. And for Paul, Paul's approach completely changed. And he wrote in a very unaffected, impactful way, something terribly simple. It just was written over his life. He says, we make it our goal to please him. That was it. That's what a follower of Christ is. Someone who makes it their goal to please Christ. And if you don't do that, you're not really following at all. But it's only the Holy Spirit that can do this. And I think you've probably heard me say this from the front before. But it is a key observation that I've noticed no matter how small a congregation is or how big a congregation is, people who are wholeheartedly following Christ make an impact and they stand out. And when I think through the people I most admire who have impacted me for good in following Christ, each of them has been totally in earnest in wanting to please God. That doesn't mean they were sober in a sense of serious and hard work people. They're really fun, but they know in their heart of hearts that they want to please God and they're living for him. The Holy Spirit does that. And the more out of our depth, more out of our comfort zone we go, the more we'll have stories of how God looks after us and is faithful. What gives you a heart like this? The Holy Spirit. And wrapped up in this is a new sense of purpose too, isn't it? And Ananias was told to say to Paul, or we're told by God why it's important, you should go and see Saul, who would become Paul, this man is a chosen instrument to proclaim my name. Have you ever asked God how he can use your life? You should. I should. What is God's purpose for you? I have a book on my bookcase called Don't Waste Your Life. And I guess the theme of the whole book is simply that. Have you aligned the days that God gives you on earth with what he wants to do? And here's, here's the rub. Here's the challenge. Living to please God and living to impress the world are not compatible ambitions. Which is a shame. But there it is. Living to please God and living to impress the world and not compatible ambitions. One of the quirky hobbies I have, quirky interests I have, is reading people's obituaries. 
And um, people achieve fame through all sorts of routes. Being entertainers, actors, sports people, famous for being famous, all sorts of things. Very rarely are people achieving obituaries because they've chosen to please God. The German preacher and theologian Helmut Thielicke, preaching during the war, said, God will have to write in red ink beneath the story of so many lives a remarkable performance, lively, interesting, fascinating, but you miss the whole point. And by that time, the story will have ended and cannot be rewritten. And lastly, lastly, we should pray, come Holy Spirit, because, and this is a pretty obvious point, really, he gives anointing. He gives power. He makes a difference. Simply trying harder won't do the trick. So much of what Jesus asks us to do you can't do in your own strength. You and I can't lead anyone to Christ in our own strength. We can't heal anyone with a prayer in our own strength. We can't do any of the stuff that he asks, but we can cooperate with God, and then he will empower us. I've got rather a good example of this, and uh, I come by it in rather a curious way. There was a man who lived in the UK, in Ireland actually, called Francis Dixon. And uh, he himself was an evangelist. And he would speak at, at meetings in, in um, little villages, in town halls and things like that. And um, he was a good conversationalist and he would often ask people how they became Christian. And he was struck, in 1936, he was struck by hearing two people's testimonies that sounded remarkably similar. And the challenging thing was that he was talking in two completely different cities in the UK. And their story was that they'd been serving in, in the Navy and they had shore leave in Australia, in Sydney, Australia. And on their shore leave, somebody had come up to them and asked them a question. And this was the question. Young man, if you were to die tonight, where would you be, in heaven or in hell? And Francis Dixon heard these two testimonies, thought, that's really curious. And so he made it a sort of... Um, little inquiry of his own when he was doing missions at some point during a week, wherever he was, to say, I wonder if there's anyone here who came to faith in Australia. And by a sort of God incident, he discovered at least eight people who had a similar story. So when in his turn he found himself leading a mission in Sydney, Australia, he talked about these coincidences and it didn't take him long to discover the story of a man called Frank Jenner of George Street, and I'll tell you his story. Frank Jenner was a shy and rather broken man, actually. But he felt that God was asking him to go up to people and to ask them this question. Young man, if you were to die tonight, where would you be, in heaven or in hell? Now, this is going to blow your mind. He asked 10 people a day for 16 years. When Francis Dixon tracked down Frank Jenner and they got to chatting, Frank Jenner was a very broken man. He had recovered from a gambling addiction and an alcohol addiction. And he was incredibly moved to hear of people who were still following Christ. And he said, you know, I never heard that anyone I ever spoke to 
had gone on for the Lord. Some made, some made professions of salvation when I spoke to them, but I never ever knew any more than that. He was so aware of his weakness that before each encounter on George Street, he always silently prayed, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. He first coined his now famous question in 1937, and over the years, he probably asked nearly 100,000 people. Friends, I, I think he's an amazing example of God's fire capturing him and the obedience of God capturing him and the help of the Holy Spirit. And I'm neatly slipping in a last point that with the Holy Spirit comes a long obedience in the same direction. You know, if Rome isn't built in a day, the kingdom of God most definitely isn't. But God is faithful and he will help. So if you want to be part of the revolution that the carpenter started over 2,000 years ago, that's what there is to it. A hunger for an encounter with God. A surrender that allows him to step into our lives. The help of the Holy Spirit. Faith, as someone said, is spelled R-I-S-K. Let's pray. So let's ask ourselves just how connected with God we might be tonight. And let's invite God to come as close as he possibly can. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you say in the scripture, if we seek you with all our heart, we'll find you. And you tell us to go on seeking, to go on asking, to go on knocking. So we do that. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here tonight who's just grown rather dull in following you, you've got distant, that you would show anything that's in the way and you draw us close to you again. And if there's anyone here who needs to reconnect, I pray that would be possible tonight to come and receive prayer and to ask to follow you afresh. And Lord, we pray that you come by your spirit to make a difference to us. As we worship you for a little time now together, Lord, make a difference to our worship, that it might come from our heart 